Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, August 10th, 2014. My name is Leah, and I'm your moderator for today's meeting. The share ID for Friday, August 8th, is 6735. That's 6735. The 12 steps, as outlined in the big book, represent a process of spiritual awakening, a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery. We submit to a simple process that is not easy, yet takes us to a place we've never been. We didn't even know it existed. The real advantage of these steps is that they are a specific method for producing a personal transformation, a change in the way a person thinks, in the way a person feels, and the way a person behaves. This morning you'll hear a story of transformation. Berta is a recovered compulsive overeater from Rock Island, Illinois, and I'm pleased to welcome her to the line this morning. Good morning and welcome, Berta F. Star one to unmute, please. Melanie? Berta, good morning. I hear you now. Yes, this is Berta F. is in Friday. I've been told that I was speaking next week. Yes, welcome, Berta. Yes. Oh, you want me to speak today? I was told it was next week, so I'm not really prepared, but I'm willing to stand up. Berta, yes, it's this week, this Sunday, if you're available. Okay, I have the 18th down in my message here, but I'll go ahead. Oh, my goodness. Good morning. (laughs) Um, My name is Berta, and I am a recovered compulsive overeater uh, in Rock Island, Illinois. Um, And uh, I've never spoken before at this meeting. This will be my first time. And I have been preparing to be ready to do this next week. But you know what? God sometimes does the unexpected, right? So we have to be ready. And I'm always ready to share my story with people that I sponsor. So I'm going to do the best job I can, okay? Thank you. Yes. If you just give me a moment, I'd like to just say the serenity prayer and gather myself for just a moment, if you'd be so patient. Thank you. Okay, thank you. I am so grateful today to be in a recovered state today for this meeting. This meeting focuses on the intensive study of the big book. As a listener for this meeting for more than a year, I find it hard to place into words the incredible effect that this big book study has had in all areas of my life, in addition to my recovery as a compulsive overeater. So I'm honored to be given an opportunity to give service to a vision for you in any way I can (laughs) with God's guidance and grace. 
I'll be using the word God because that's the word I use today for my higher power, although that wasn't always the case. Um, I grew up using the word God, but, uh, you know, uh, as my experience went on, I just, I was back and forth on that idea. But that's what I use today. Uh, When I went to my first OA meeting in 1987, I walked out. I was sure that I wouldn't return again. They did have a lot to say about God. Uh, Several of them had their big book and their religious text with them at the meeting. I didn't understand that. But, you know, um, I figured God hadn't done much for me lately, and I really didn't want to be there And I was not very far overweight. I would say I was probably at the very first stage of my disease. You know, I'm a moderate overeater. Um, And then I didn't go to another OA meeting until July of 2009. By then I was miserable, very miserable, desperate and afraid, really afraid. I was sure that nothing could ever help me or change me. I only showed up there because I promised that nice stranger on the phone. She talked to me for more than an hour and a half. She didn't know me. She didn't want anything from me other than to tell me uh, what her problem was and how she was able to be free of that. And that sounded good to me. So I was willing to give it a shot, but only because it was free. And I had nothing better to do but listen on the phone to that meeting with my bench foods all laid out in front of me so that I wouldn't get too bored or uncomfortable while listening. That's where I began. Uh, So... I uh, I I want to qualify before I go too much further. You know, I am a compulsive overeater. I'm unique, just like everybody else, <laughs> and just like everybody else on the line, because I'm I am a compulsive overeater. In my disease, I've experienced uh, periods of bulimic behavior. I've experienced periods of anorexic behavior, binging, purging, and every Monday starting over, and sometimes starting over every day. Um, To further qualify, I have uh, 722 days of abstinence, back-to-back without a break. Um, I'm on a food plan that I didn't come up with. A nutritionist came with that plan. Uh, after I've been totally honest, I was honest with her about my disease and what that looked like for me, what my binge foods were, the things that I couldn't include in my diet because of that, so the things I, the, the things in my daily, not a diet, but my food plan, the things uh, that I was willing to admit. I had a list of those things, which for me, not for everybody, were among a few things were white flour and sugar. 
And uh, she gave me a food plan, and I began to follow that food plan. And that's and then I uh, was able to work these steps uh, more than once. It took more than once for me to be teachable. Even when I was abstinent, I was not always teachable. And uh, being teachable has made quite a difference for me. Um, and uh, I guess I'll I'll tell you a little bit about um, how my disease began. It's uh, I couldn't tell you ten years ago how it began because I didn't know what what the disease was or what it looked like. I thought I was like everyone else that had a weight problem, that battled a weight problem, and I was no different. But really deep inside I knew I was different from people in my family and other people I came across because no one in my family had a problem with their weight, and people in my family didn't do things with their food that I did. Uh, when I was when I was very young, um, when my brother would go trick or treating, for instance, he would come home, hand off his candy to my mother for protection so that I wouldn't get into it, and go out again. He stayed out much longer than I ever did, and then he would bring his candy home. But at Christmas time, during Christmas vacation from school. He would still have his candy. I couldn't understand that because mine was gone, all of it, within 48 hours. <laughs> and uh, and I wanted to get home quicker than he did because I couldn't wait to get to the candy. But what he didn't know is the whole time between Halloween and Christmas, every chance I got when he wasn't around, I was looking for that candy because I was going to find it. <laughs> And I never did. He didn't tell me until he was in his 40s where he hit it. <laughs> but uh, that's what I did. And um, I never, I, the other people in my family didn't sneak food and hide it. Um, and my mother seemed to be always aware that she watched my food more closely than she did my brother. Um, there were no, there was no snacking in between meals, and uh, when she went to she went to a weight loss club when I was young, about nine years old, and she took me with her, and she paid me a quarter a day to write down what I ate, and if I did that, you know that that was my reward, and I was kind of like her partner when she would go on her. Uh, on her food programs with with this thing, and it wasn't OA. And then I went back and looked at my pictures when I was going over my story for today, and I really wasn't overweight. I and I asked her about it. She said I was always worried because you know you take after your aunt. And I, I said, Oh, Aunt Lafern, yes. I said, Oh, okay. My Aunt Lafern was overweight, always was, and I loved her so much. <laughs> But it wasn't that I was overweight as a child. It was that she was worried about my eating patterns. Um, as I got older, um, the physical problem did not really appear until my, oh, 
like after I had my children in my mid to late 20s, I was always dieting because it was starting to show. I think the first time I remember being approached and saying that I had a weight problem, though, was when I was 17. I got a job as an assistant bookkeeper, and I worked in a big factory. I worked in the bookkeeping office behind the executive cafeteria, and there was food there all the time. Everybody was eating all the time, and I joined in, but I was sitting all day in the office, whereas usually in the summertime, I would be not working at 17, earlier than 17, and I played tennis for six hours a day at least. When the street lights came on, I came home. I always had my tennis racket with me. So when I stopped playing tennis for six hours a day, and then I was still eating a lot like I would normally do when I had the chance, then, of course, that's when the weight creeped on. Anyway, this is not really a story about weight. So... It's a story of um, how I recovered using these 12 steps, the big book, and plugging into a power that enabled me to become a recovered person. Okay. Sorry for the pause. Just gathering my thoughts. Okay. Um, as I got older, uh, the problem progresses. You know, it never gets better, it always gets worse. And my disease did, in fact, get a lot worse. So I just continued to gain weight and lose weight and gain weight and lose weight, hundreds of pounds. I tried every method available to me. And in the big book, in the chapter on more about alcoholism, it talks about how they tried different methods, you know, drinking beer instead of hard liquor you know, moving to a different place, doing all these different things. And that's what I did with my food. I tried everything that you can imagine, and I have a list, and there's at least 38 different things on there that I tried. There was one thing I tried over and over and over again to the point of insanity, and that was a program where you give them your money, you pay money, and they talk to you, and that's what you do every week. I always did that for at least three months at a time. I was never able to stay stopped on that program for more than six months or so because I always was able to get to my binge foods, but I had to try and control the quantity during that time. And if you've read the doctor's opinion, you know that that is only going to be a temporary situation for me. All the things that I tried, they look really good. They work really good for a while. But they're never going to be the kind of daily recovery that I have a guarantee of today using this program 
and the directions in the first 164 pages of this book. So I heard a few things when I finally got here. But I will say that when I got here, um, I was I was probably at the lowest bottom I could be without being at a point where I wasn't here anymore, either by choice or by physical consequences. And I just want to read a few things to you from the big book as we go along. This book is about me. It's for me. And when I finish, it's not like I'm going to finish the course, get a report card, and move on with my life, happy, joyous, and free. This is a book that I have to look at. I have to study it every day. And I have to apply what I read to my life every day. And that's why I listen to this meeting. No matter how many times they read through this solution, I'm going to be on the line because I need to I need to hear it over and over again. And I need to apply it every day. Over and over again throughout the day because my disease will never leave me. It's always going to be here. Like somebody said, once a pickle Never a cucumber again. Never. So in the doctor's opinion here, it says on the very first page, the doctor's opinion, by the way, is a preface. And a preface is just an introduction. Uh, It gives you an idea of what this book is about, about what it's going to offer, the scope and the concept that you're going to be looking at. So in the doctor's opinion, it says that I personally know of scores of cases who were of the type with whom other methods had failed completely. Well, that's me. Other methods did fail completely. But also in the foreword, there are are forewords to each edition. If you look at your book, there are forewords. I would recommend that you read those. I did. I found a lot of hope in the forewords of this book. In the forward to the second edition, it says, it is our great hope that all those who have as yet found no answer may begin to find one in the pages of this book and will presently join us on the road to a new freedom. And I did. I'm on the road to freedom. I found it, and it gets better every day. It also says in the forward to the second edition, in the second paragraph, it says, it was thought that no alcoholic man or woman could be excluded from our society. That means everybody, doesn't it? So that means me, if I want this. When I came here, I thought this won't work for me because I have a dual diagnosis. And a dual diagnosis means that, like it talks about in the chapter, how it works, in Chapter 5, the one uh, that's read at at most meetings at the beginning, a lot of meetings read the first few pages of how it works at their meetings. And it says, there are those, too, who suffer from grave emotional and mental disorders, but many of them do recover if they have the capacity to be honest. 
So I had been diagnosed uh, starting at 28 years old. My first diagnosis was situational depression, and after that I had several others. Uh, Today um, I'm doing so much better. I, I thought that was a diagnosis for the rest of my life you know, the misery of that. Um, I, I respect that as an illness and treat it. It's an outside issue. But uh, I am not so unique that this solution is not going to apply to me because I'm worse than anybody else. I'm not as bad as someone else. Uh, if I compare myself too much to other people and and I don't identify in then uh, it's not going to help me. So identifying into this problem is a big portion of getting a start. So the doctor's opinion is uh, something that's really worth your while, and there's some wonderful podcasts on the website that cover the doctor's opinion in really beautiful detail, and that helped me so much. I'm, I am a college graduate. I've, I'm a well-read person. But when it comes to listening about my disease and being teachable, it came in small doses over a period of time because I have something called denial that comes along with this disease. And it's it takes me a while to get through that, and these podcasts were really, really helpful with that. Um, as we go on in the doctor's opinion, one paragraph in particular that helped me quite a bit is men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. The sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, they cannot after a time differentiate the true from the false. Not right from wrong, but the true from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. That's why I felt like everybody else. Normal, overweight, but normal. They are restless, irritable, and discontented unless they can, again, experience the ease and comfort which comes at once by taking a few drinks. Drinks they see others taking with impunity. Now, once I take that first bite, what happens to me? Well, it says here, after they have succumbed to the desire again, as many do, and as I did, and the phenomenon of craving develops, they pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again, and this is repeated over and over. That was my experience. Every Monday, I would begin some new way of eating. I was not going to eat my binge foods again. I was going to try one more time. And as soon as I'd done... Really good. I would say, you know, I've been good for I've been good for two days now. I deserve a treat. One bite of that treat and I was gone again. And the rest of the week was gone, was just lost to me. So when we when I read this book for the first time, um I using the word alcohol bothered me, but the truth is I I eat like an alcoholic drinks. So I have to identify in with this book, and when they talk about drinking alcohol and when and uh, the bottles 
that are littered around me, those are the bags and the packages and the containers of all the food I ate, you know. And when I wake up from a binge and start to come into uh, a moment of being lucid and I look around, I'm like, why? So as I go on here in the doctor's opinion, it says, men have cried out to me in sincere and despairing appeal. Doctor, I cannot go on like this. I have everything to live for. I must stop, but I cannot. You must help me. Now, I didn't say that to my doctor. I said the exact opposite. I told my doctor, I said, you know, uh, I can't stop eating. No matter how hard I try, no matter how much I want to stop eating, I can't stop. No one can help me. I've spent thousands of dollars trying to find something that will help me. There's nothing I can do. I was a brand-new patient, had just moved back home, and she was seeing this doctor for the first time. And I, she said, well, do you want me to give you a food plan or something? I said, no, there's nothing you can do to help me. I don't think I'm going to be your patient for very long. I just don't think I'm going to live that long because I can't stop. And that's that's why I couldn't even, they couldn't weigh me on their scale, you know. Uh, when you when you weigh over a certain amount of weight, the scale is not going to weigh you. I was 100 pounds past the top weight, you know. The top weight, as far as I know, for me was 507 pounds. I was hopeless. There was nothing anybody could do for me. Um, now, after losing several hundred pounds, I know that that was not true, but I was in a panic. Uh, my doctor told me that her sister had got had a was following a program, and she had lost uh, 240 some pounds, uh, which is incredible because that's about the time I'm telling my story. You know, I'm and I I'm I can't believe this how remarkable it is. Uh, but anyway, she kept her weight off for two years, and she was happy, joyous, and free. And she told me about her experience with this program and the steps. And that was the first time I'd ever heard it. And uh, this was the sister of the doctor that I cried out to for help. I wasn't used to talking to doctors about my weight problem because I knew that they had pretty much declared me hopeless. But when my son called me, and he was going through a rough time in his life, and he said, I decided to get busy living or get busy dying. He saw it on a movie. He saw that quote on a movie and told me about it. He said he was going to get busy living and get the help he needed. And he said, why don't you do that, Mom? And he said, you know, you have a problem. Why don't you get busy living? So after I talked to him on the phone, I got the courage to say that, tell my doctor nobody can help me. And then, of course, I was introduced to this a beautiful program and the process of recovery which is outlined in this book in such masterly detail uh, in the doctor's opinion it says on page XXX then there are types of people uh, types entirely normal in every respect except in the effect alcohol has upon them they are often able intelligent friendly people 
I was in the beginning stages of my disease. Unfortunately, by the time I got here, I was disabled, unfriendly, isolated. I was intelligent, but none of my actions were logical in any way, shape, or form or looked anything like sanity. So my intelligence, my self-knowledge, wasn't helping me in any way. I said here, the only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. And if that was the answer, then that's what I wanted. So I had to find out what abstinence was for me. And that was eating reasonable, sane amounts of foods at reasonable, sane intervals and not eating my binge foods. And not only not eating my binge foods, not taking the first bite, but I had to resign from the BLT club. I had to resign from the bite, lick, taste club. So the BLT club had to go. I had to be completely and totally abstinent and honest. So I did what these people told me to do, and I had abstinence. But for some time, that's all I had was abstinence, you know, for several months. And I had to be willing to be uncomfortable during that period of time until the solution was applied to my life and to my mind and to my soul. You know, sometimes if I, this is my prescription. Sometimes if the doctor gives me a prescription, He's not going to say, take this pill. You'll feel better right away. Your infection will be gone as soon as you swallow this pill. No, usually when I take an antibiotic, it's going to take me several days to find any relief from what my whatever my problem is. So I had to be willing to be uncomfortable while I was allowing this prescription to work within my diseased mind and body. Because as the Dr. Pinion says, I have a physical allergy, which means as soon as I get a bite of a certain type of food, I'm not going to be able to stop. So I have I have that physical allergy, and I have the mental obsession that my mind can obsess about food until... Nothing but nothing but taking that first bite is going to give me any relief. So I need to head that off at the pass. And that's why I had to read I had to read in this book the chapter more about alcoholism and there is a solution and it it and in more about alcoholism that starts on page 30. It talks about the insane thinking that precedes the first bite. My problem doesn't even begin with the first bite. It begins with that thinking that goes on in my head before before I take that first bite. The insanity in my head. Just this one time. Just one bite. I'll just lick my finger just to remind myself of how good it tastes. Or, you know taking extra time putting the food away. Some, you know, in early abstinence, for me, there were times when I would be putting the food away, my abstinent food, after I'd already finished my meal, 
and I'd go back into the kitchen to put the food away, and it became like a staring contest. Who's going to blink first, me or the food? And then I had to just say, wait. And then I would learn the serenity prayer. And my sponsor told me, when you have those moments when you're having a staring contest with the food and the obsession of your mind begins to take effect, say the serenity prayer. And the serenity prayer, uh, I'm asking God for serenity, for calm, for peace, and the absence of a disturbing change in my psyche. I'm asking for that. And uh, courage is not the absence of fear, it's overcoming it. I'm still going to have fear when I'm early abstinent and these steps have not been applied to my life. You know, I'm afraid I'm going to eat and I'm afraid of what will happen if I do, but I'm still going to have the obsession of the mind until I apply these steps to my life. But having that courage in spite of the fear and asking in that prayer for that serenity and, you know, being willing to accept things the way they are, you know, that I'm a compulsive overeater with an obsession, help me to accept that and give me the courage you know, of overcoming that fear so that God's will for me can be done and I can have another abstinent meal, another abstinent day. And even if it's uncomfortable, that courage, and even even saying that prayer before I ever even decided what my higher power was. And that kind of willingness That comes with desperation. The big book talks about the desperation of a dying man. You know, yes, that kind of desperation. I, you know, I still wonder why I didn't come when I was not in the final stages of my disease. And all I can figure out is I wanted the food more than I wanted the the solution. You know, I had to be really miserable, uh, I guess, and or I would have sought out this program for myself on my own. Even after I went in 1987, I knew they existed, but I didn't look for it on my own because I really wasn't ready to give up until I was really beaten down. Um, Bill's story, there's some really beautiful things in that story I would suggest reading this book from the very first page on, from the forewords on. In Bill's story on page 8, it says, this is where I was when I came to OA. No words can tell of the loneliness and despair I found in that bitter morass of self-pity. Quicksand stretched around me in all directions. I had met my match. I had been overwhelmed. Alcohol was my master it goes on to say how dark it is before the dawn. And then what has happened to me is in the next paragraph at the bottom, I was to know happiness, peace, and usefulness and in a way of life that is incredibly more wonderful as time passes. Who would have thought? Who would have thought? I sure didn't when I listened to you people talking about how what a wonderful life you have. I really thought I was unique. I was different from you. I really thought 
maybe I wouldn't get everything that you got from this program. There was that fear. But I had to continue on. And in Bill's story in step two, it says, I simply had to believe in a spirit of the universe who knew neither time nor limitation, but that was as far as I had gone. And step two, I wasn't really sure what God meant to me. I wasn't. Re- I didn't have a real clear picture of what that was going to be like. The only thing I knew is that there there was a God of some kind, and that it was not me. You know, even if I didn't think God had done for me what I thought God should have done, I knew I wasn't God because what I was doing wasn't working. And then on page twelve. Uh, it says, second paragraph, my friend suggested what then seemed like a novel idea. He said, why don't you choose your own conception of God? And that's what I had to do. It was only a matter of being willing to believe in a power greater than myself. Nothing more was required of me to make my beginning. Doesn't sound very hard, does it? (laughs) That's the foundation of complete willingness according to Bill's story on chapter 12. I mean, page 12, I'm sorry. And then on page 12 and 13 and 14 uh, and 15, it goes through the rest of the steps that he experienced in his story. On page 16, at the end of Bill's story, second to the last paragraph, it says, Faith has to work 24 hours a day in us and through us or we perish. So what does that tell me? That tells me that I must, this is after he's worked the 12 steps. It says I must, that that means I must plug in. I must connect to my higher power every day and often throughout the day. And why do I do that? I don't do that simply because of step three, that I turn my life and will over to the care of God. I do that because I am powerless. I have no power. I need power, and that's God. So I have to connect to that power every day, throughout the day. And we go on to chapter two, There is a Solution. This this chapter is about being powerless and why I need a higher power solution. So um, I find the fellowship by this time. um, As I'm reading along and applying this solution to my life, I'm finding that there's a fellowship. I'm finding out that there are people who care about me. And it says on page 17, the feeling of having shared in a common peril is one element in the powerful cement which binds us, but that in itself would never have held us together as we are now joined. The fellowship alone is not enough for me. It's, it's, it's a wonderful support. They're going to encourage me to get off the Titanic and get into the lifeboat They're going to encourage me to do that. And once I'm in the lifeboat, they're going to encourage me to stay there. But it's still up to me whether I get in the lifeboat, and it's still up to me if I'm going to stay in the lifeboat. I can be abstinent for a while, 
and start working these steps, and then I can jump out of the lifeboat. That's up to me, but this fellowship is there for me. You know, it's it's a companion to this book. <coughs> uh, so, you know, I, I work this program, and I work step one, two, and three. I read sections of the book, not the whole book, because that's what my first sponsor told me to do. She gave me what she had to offer, and bless her heart, I'm grateful for her. But when I got to step three, that I could turn my life and my will over to the care of God as I understood him, I figured step one, step two, step three, I'm home free. I know what to eat. I know when to eat it. I know how to weigh and measure it, and that's really all I need. And the rest of this program, steps four through nine, I'm just going to do that like a book report. I'll just do what they tell me to do. But the main thing is that I'm I'm abstinent and I'm weighing and measuring my food. Kind of silly. Like I say, I was teachable to an extent in the beginning of my journey. And I really believed that the only thing I had to focus on was the first three steps. And I had no idea how I was ever going to live in 10, 11, and 12. I, you know, I, I was not teachable with that. I didn't have the right information in the beginning of my journey. That was before I found Vision for You. And I've been listening for well over a year now. I have that information now thanks to this beautiful fellowship. So I, I did step one, two, three. I started leading some meetings online in a chat room. And they asked me what time I wanted to lead a meeting, and I said, sure, I'll lead a meeting. I can type in what you want me to type in and facilitate that OA meeting. And they, and when they asked me for a time, I said, I'll do it at 2 o'clock in the morning. I said, you know why I wanted to do it at 2 o'clock in the morning? Because that's when I was most likely to go on a binge, and I wanted extra insurance. That I, That's not really service. <laughs> It was technically I was providing service, but I was really servicing myself more than that fellowship because I wanted that insurance of leading that meeting so that I could take care of me. So I still had me on my mind. I was still always on my mind, but I thought I had worked the third step. But I was still trying to take care of myself. I still thought I had some power and control because if I thought leading a meeting at 2 in the morning was going to keep me from binging, I wasn't admitting that I was powerless. I was still trying to control things. I was still on my mind. Today, God is on my mind. God is on my mind at this very moment. God is my constant companion. That's the difference. That's That's how I learned how to love by finding out how to love myself and other people also, uh, by having God on my mind and following this program. Okay. Um, As we go on in in this chapter, there is a solution. It says, he does absurd, incredible, tragic things while drinking. He is always more or less insanely drunk. He is often perfectly sensible and well-balanced concerning everything except liquor, but in that respect he is incredibly dishonest and selfish. 
And I was incredibly dishonest and selfish. Um, When I first came in 2009, I was abstinent for several months, but I had seven sponsors that fired me and one that I fired, and the whole time that was going on, I was abstinent. I was honestly abstinent, but as far as really understanding what I was doing with the steps, I don't think I really knew what was going on, and they must have known it, and thank God they, thank God they dropped me. Um, because that let me know there's, there was something wrong, there was something more in my path, and I gave up and decided that I would do it all by myself and I didn't need a sponsor. And um, if I was there in person, I would ask you, can you raise your hands and how many of you think you know what happened when I decided to do it all by myself? Uh, my, since I wasn't very teachable with a sponsor, I wasn't going to be any more teachable on my own, and so it didn't take me very long to have a relapse. That relapse, unfortunately, lasted for 18 months. Some people don't know what a relapse is. They don't know, or maybe they don't know the difference between a relapse and a slip. I don't know what a slip is. I only know what a relapse is. I know that when I chose to eat my binge foods, when I chose to um, have an episode of compulsive overeating or purging or anything like that, I know that I didn't slip, you know. Now, if I slip and fall and the food falls into my mouth, I still have a choice of whether or not to relapse because I still have to chew it up and swallow it. Even if I fall and slip and the food falls into my mouth, I still have a choice to spit it out, don't I? I don't know. That's what. That's how I feel about that. And I that relapse lasted, eight, lasted 18 months. And the reason why I say that is because I was abstinent at times during that relapse. There were times when I could stay abstinent for two weeks in the beginning. But then after several months, um, I noticed my mother came over and she said, your scale is all dusty. And I thought, oh, no, I am found out now. I'd been lying for months that I was still doing everything I was supposed to do and everything was fine. And I was really balancing. I was doing a balancing act. And it says in here, you know, that we are dishonest you know, and selfish. And I didn't want anybody to know what was really going on with me. I had my mask on firm. I didn't want my family to know that I was failing fast. And so I just, I would binge, and then I went back to my laxative addiction, and I tried something that a lot of people that have this disease probably do. I just know I did it. I tried to maintain the appearance of a degree of recovery. And if I was in my in, in a meeting room online, um, and if I was abstinent for two weeks and no one else was abstinent for more than two days, I felt real good about that because then that made me the expert. But that's nothing to do with what the real solution is. It's not entire abstinence is required for the solution to take place. The solution for me is not entire abstinence. The solution is living in these 12 steps every day, one day at a time. Because 
the reason why abstinence is not my entire solution is because I cannot stay abstinent for any period of time consistently without having this solution. Eventually, I'm going to eat. Eventually, I'm going to binge. Eventually, I'm going to purge unless this solution is applied to my life. But doing that for 18 months and all the pretending and if I was with at the grocery store with, with a family member, I would take my binge foods at the checkout line, try to beat them to the checkout line, take my binge foods, bring a big purse so I could put my binge foods in my purse so that when I got in the car, no one would see that I had binge foods on my person and just and couldn't wait to get home and alone so I could get at them, you know. Uh, I just... I, it's just the the insanity of the secrecy and the game I played during that during that relapse. So what did I get out of that relapse? Did it serve any purpose? You bet it did. It made me realize how crazy I was. When I worked that first step, where powerless over food, our lives had become unmanageable. I could I could say I was powerless over food, but I didn't really think my life was unmanageable. But when I had that 18-month relapse and I gained 15 pounds during that time, it wasn't the weight that was so obvious about the insanity. It was the insanity of what I was doing on a daily basis. You know, binging and back and forth, and now I'm going to be abstinent. Now I'm not. On page 23, um, it says, Sometimes these excuses have a certain plausibility, but none of them really make sense in the light of the havoc an alcoholic's drinking bout creates. They sound like the philosophy of the man who, having a headache, beats himself on the head with a hammer so that he can't feel the ache. My reasoning was fallacious because I was in and out and in and out of the food. Some people call that struggling with the food. I call that, for me, that was my relapse. That was just a relapse. That was insanity. It says on page 24, we are unable at certain times to bring into consciousness with a sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We are without defense against the first drink. Every time I picked up the food during that 18-month relapse, I had the knowledge that I needed to know that, that this was my disease. But it didn't. I needed it so bad at that time, I said what it says in the next paragraph, uh, second from the bottom, it says, the alcoholic may say to himself in the most casual way, it won't burn me this time, so here's how. That's the first few bites. Then as I continue to drink, I say at the end of that paragraph, for God's sake, how did I get started again? I said that. I really said that only to have that thought supplanted by, well, I'll stop with the sixth drink. And then finally, what I finally said, what's the use anyhow? You know, I've already I've already messed up, so I might as well do what I want to do. And I think I got so sick in that 18 months in my mind and in my spirit, financially and in every way, I really think maybe... I don't know what God's path was for me. I guess that was God's way of making me teachable, making me ready so I could stop fighting and arguing about the solution and just 
go through the process and apply it the way it's written. And thank God I did find that. On page 25 it says, We have had a deep and effective spiritual experiences which have revolutionized our whole attitude toward life, toward our fellows, and toward God's universe. And there's an asterisk there. The first time I went through this book, I never noticed that. But when I read through it and I was really ready, I turned to the appendix in the back of the book and I read about the spiritual experience. And that's when I realized that that experience, how I thought I had found God the first time, I thought it was just, you know, a flash in the pan. It was something that I got emotional. I got that frothy emotional appeal from the idea of God, but I didn't really know how to apply it and that it was going to be a learning experience for me, according to that appendix. So I would suggest you read that. Uh, It's got a lot of good information in it. Uh, Let me see. And and the spiritual experience is vital. However, that looks for anybody. uh, For me, it's just simply God. Um, It doesn't have to be specific. It's just a simple idea of God. As long as I know I'm not God and that there is something that has a massive amount of power that can help me, that works for me. And as I went along in my journey past the second step and into the third step, I began to see God in my life in a way I never had before after that relapse. It was a a different experience because now it was not about abstinence anymore. It was about getting this spiritual awakening a spiritual awakening uh, sufficient to arrest my disease in its tracks so that I no longer had to fear the food. So on page 28 it says, We have no desire to convince anyone that there is only one way by which faith can be acquired. It also says as soon as we are willing and honest enough to try, we're good. It's a personal affair of how you find your higher power. But it says on 29, there are clear-cut directions given here showing how we recovered. And there are a few stories in the back of the book. A couple of my favorite stories are the chapter on acceptance. My favorite pages in that chapter are 418 and 419. There's another one there's another chapter that I really identify a story in the back of the book and the story is called Because I'm an Alcoholic. So those those are my two favorite stories in the back of the book. Okay. I'm sorry, I'm just gathering my thoughts. Okay, I've talked about step one. We admitted we were powerless over food that our lives had become unmanageable. I became teachable and honest, honest about that fact. Um, as long as I kept a pilot light burning that someday I would have control over my food, when I got to my normal weight I would have control over my food, that pilot light had to be extinguished. It had to be completely extinguished in step one. Like it says uh, in Chapter 3, my all-time favorite paragraph that I read every day. 
The second paragraph on page 30 says, We learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery. The delusion that we are like other people, or presently may be someday, has to be smashed. We alcoholics are men and women who have lost the ability to control our drinking. We know that no real alcoholic ever recovers control. It also says over any considerable period of time, we get worse. We never grow new legs. Once a cucumber, once a pickle, never a cucumber again. And then I talked about step two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. That's my hope. All I have to do is hope. In other words, I believe that the people I have heard in this meeting have found a recovered state. They are happy, joyous, and free. The food is in a place of neutrality. And when I see that and I know how they did it, it's pretty easy for me to believe that there is a power greater than me and that it could restore me to sanity. That's my hope. That's the principle behind that step. And then in my third step, I had to, I made a decision. Made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. And the principle of that step is faith. You notice how these steps say we? We turn our will and our lives, and we admitted. Uh, I read them that way because I know I'm not doing this alone. You're all doing this with me. We're all together. So I had to, my third step. Uh, I'll tell you what helped me with the third step is reading the chapter, We Agnostics. Since I can't stop on the basis of self-knowledge, you know, self-knowledge for me was my food plan and weighing and measuring my food, that was my self-knowledge and knowing that I had a problem. Uh, I think the first time around, at looking at my journals, I believed my higher power probably was in the form of a trinity. My higher power was my food plan, my scale, and my measuring cups, the holy trinity. And that was going to be my saving grace. But I found out that was not true. I found out that I was hopeless, 100% hopeless, apart from divine help. I found out on page 43, the alcoholic at certain times has no effective mental defense against the first drink, except in a few rare cases neither he nor any other human being can provide such a defense. His defense must come from a higher power. So it can't come from my nutritionist. It can't come from my sponsor. It doesn't come from the fellowship, as beautiful as this fellowship is. That's not where it comes from. It has to come from my entire, my concept of a higher power, and it can be very, very simple. Uh, it can be, I started out with divine light. That's what I called it. Then I called it the goddess. 
and then I called it Good Orderly Direction. I fooled around with different names for my higher power. I even wrote a want ad for a higher power, as my sponsor had directed me to do. She said, write a want ad that, like you're going to hire a higher power for yourself and write down all the qualities that your higher power should have. And that's what I did. But I think really, I think it's more effective for me in the long run. I mean, I can have my own concept of God, but that can also get me in trouble because if I'm not careful, I can make a whole list of do's and don'ts for my higher power. You're my higher power and you must do this. You're my higher power, but you must not do that. Then what am I doing? Well, I'm really saying that I'm, my power is I'm higher than God. And so this list of telling people what my higher power is and writing that want ad was really, for me, nothing more than an exercise in self-will trying to control my concept of God to make sure that I always had a loophole. (laughs) Isn't that crazy? (laughs) So uh, coming up with a concept of God for me was just a slow, patient listening, being willing to listen, being willing to just say, I'm here, asking God to just come in and show me the way. And and God shows me so many things in so many ways through people, music, my grandchildren. God finds a way to communicate with me. It's not not a voice that I hear exactly. It's kind of hard to explain. But as long as I'm willing to meet God halfway and be open to the idea that there is a God that's there for me and cares about me and loves me and wants to guide me, as long as I can let go of my self-will, that's the first step. And so in the chapter, We Agnostics, they talk a lot about self-will and what that means. It says on page 46, we found that as soon as we were able to lay aside prejudice and express even a willingness to believe in a power greater than ourselves, we commenced to get results even though it was impossible for any of us to fully define or comprehend that power, which is God. So uh, they give us a few names throughout this book, one of them being creative intelligence, one of them being spirit of the universe. Um, They talk about the realm of the spirit. You know, they give us a few choices here if we don't want to use the word God, but we have to have a concept of a higher power and it doesn't have to be fully defined. It just has to be enough to uh, enough for us to lean into as we work through these steps. All we needed, it says on page 47 at the start, this was all we needed to commence spiritual growth, to affect our first conscious relation with God as we understood him. And afterward, we found ourselves accepting many things which seemed then seemed entirely out of reach. That was growth. If I was going to grow, I had to begin somewhere. And when I, when I, as long as I made a beginning and I became willing, that's really what I needed to do: is be willing. And I have And then in the spiritual, I'm sorry, I feel like I'm jumping around here. 
I hope you'll be patient with me. I'm not anything like a professional speaker. I'm just, but I'm a compulsive overeater, just like you. Um, the spiritual experience is in the appendix in the back of the book. Mine is on page 567. Um, on page 568, the last paragraph says, we find that no one need have difficulty with the spirituality of this program. Willingness, honesty, and open-mindedness are the essentials of recovery, but these are indispensable. And then it has a quote below that by Herbert Spencer, which talks about, you know, the principle uh, is contempt prior to investigation. If I have contempt before I ever even investigate this idea, I'm not going to get very far. So I have to be open-minded, you know, and that's why I have to let go of all my old ideas about God. If it didn't work for me before, then I either have to add to it or change it. Or be willing to just be open to to a bigger, larger experience. And instead of having God in a tiny little box, which was my concept of God, the only time I ever took God out of the box was when I had a 911. You know what I mean? If I had something that was really something that was really important, then I would take God out of the little box and say, I need help with this. This is the one thing that I can't handle on my own. I mean, is that arrogant or what? That that was self-will. Every once in a while I'd take my God out of his little box if if I was worried about somebody in my life that I cared about, and I would ask God to take care of that problem because I had exhausted all everything I knew, all my means of solving that problem. I'd run out of means, so I would take God out of the little box and say, you'll think you're going to have to take care of this one. I, I just can't figure this one out. Because I I was in self-will. Of course I was. You know, I thought I, I'm an intelligent, college-educated person. I know everything I need to know, and I can figure just about anything out. And if I it, And I'll do it any way I can. I'll lie. I'll manipulate. I will find a way to work this problem out. And, and I wanted what I wanted when I wanted it. it that was it. The only time I opened that God box is when I couldn't figure out how to get it. And then I would be real humble and sweet, sweet little promises to God. God, I love you. You've got to fix this for me. Now I know that God has to be a part of my life. Whether I'm having a good day, a bad day, something in between, God has to be an ever-present part of my life, and I'm so grateful that that's the case today. Okay, um, on the bottom of page 50, it says, In the face of collapse and despair, in the face of the total failure of their human resources, they have found a new power, peace, happiness, and sense of direction flowed into them. I'm all for that. That sounds a lot better than what I had before. It says, Once confused and baffled by the seemingly futility of existence, they show the underlying reasons why they were making heavy going of life. Yeah, I was confused and baffled when I was living in self-will. I mean, it was uh, oh, it was like trying to juggle too many things at one time. I mean, everywhere I turned, there were people, places, things, situations, principles. 
I was attacked at all sides trying to juggle everything all by myself. And I thought I was doing such a good job of juggling my own life. I was constantly available to help you fix your mess of a life. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I'm serious. I re- That's what it was. I really thought I had a handle on this, you know. You need any advice, you just call me and I'll tell you how to live your life too. But I was truly a mess. When I looked in the mirror and I didn't have God in my life and I was juggling everything, I'll tell you what. Once I came home and took off my mask that I showed to the world, I looked in the mirror. All I saw were my inadequacies, the absence of my dreams, and the futility of my future. And I thank God that it's not that way today because I made the step two and the step three choice. I was crushed by this disease and I decided that I could come to believe in a power greater than myself to restore me to sanity. I then made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as as I understood him. That's faith. Now... There was something else I wanted to talk about. See if I can find it in my notes. Okay, yeah. Um, you know, in step three, I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but I used to hear this quite a bit. Um, I did a step three. I turned it over, and I was doing really good, but I took it back. And then I turned it over again after lunch, and then I took it back. I just keep turning it over. You know, and I've been praying the third step prayer. I've said that. I've I've done that. I've I've experienced that for myself, and I've heard it also. Uh, but the main thing is, I did that, and I was always saying, "Well, I keep turning it over." Actually, if I'm going to keep turning something over and over again and keep taking it back, uh, they told me, "Well, that's that's your ego. That's easing God out." Well. If I keep turning it over and taking it back and in step three over and over again, what am I really doing? If I'm taking it back, aren't I saying that I'm taking my power back? So if I'm powerless, how can I how can I turn it over and take it back? Am I really not turning the light switch on and turning the light switch off? Yeah. Because at some point when I take it back, I think I have the power again to handle it. So there's no reason for me to turn it over in step three, any situation, and then take it back again. There's no reason for me to do that. It's uh, it's a little insane, but that's what I did for a time. And that was my experience with step three, turning it over and taking it back, turning it over and taking it back. But I finally made a decision, and that decision had to be, that I was I was going to have to turn my will and my life over to the care of God and have the courage to act on God's will on a daily basis, no matter what that might be, even if it was something that I don't want, even if I have to wait for what I want, even if I never get what I want, I have to rely on God's will for me because I'm not as smart as I thought. I had to let go of my old ideas my logic and my reasoning, and I had to use that bridge of willingness to come to the other side, 
come to the other side where all of you are waiting for me on that beautiful shore, you know, and I come to the point where God is ever either everything or God is nothing. And having had that choice to go back to my misery or to continue on recovery, I'm, I'm, I have to have the willingness in order to cross that bridge to the other side and have God in my life. And so all the barriers that I had built up, you know, in my relationship with God, they they become swept away. Um, on page 56 it says, In a few seconds he was overwhelmed by a conviction of the presence of God. It poured over and through him with the certainty and majesty, majesty of a great tide at flood. The barriers he had built through the years were swept away. I just kind of said that. He stood in the presence of infinite power and love. He has stepped from bridge to shore. For the first time, he lived in conscious companionship with his creator. Thus, our friend's cornerstone was fixed in place. Since then, nothing has shaken it. So once I once I have the willingness to cross over, I don't have to go back to the other side again and again and again. I need to stay on the other side of the bridge where God is. And then we come to Chapter 5. Just so that you know, when I first came to this program, this is where I started. I skipped everything that I've been talking about for the last 43 minutes. Oh, my gosh, my time is almost gone. Okay, you can tell I'm not an experienced speaker because I've wasted a lot of my time on on the first part of this, uh, page 60 are the ABCs. If you see those paragraphs there, uh, that's the whole nutshell of the first part of this program. Um, I'm not even going to get a chance to move into a lot of the other steps. So I guess instead of a story of transformation, it was more like the story of the first three steps. Melanie, how much time do I have? Are you on the line? I am. I am, Berta. Thank you so much. And um, you're nearing you're nearing a wrap up time. Okay. All right. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay. So I guess I'm going to have to wrap up. Um, anyway, those first three steps that I covered, that was my introduction to this program, and the third step was my commitment to my commitment to go forward with the rest of these steps. So it is not step one, two, three, home free. It's step one, two, three, now I'm ready to recover. Now I'm ready to go beyond abstinence and into a journey of recovery that's going to place me in a safe place with the food. So at step three, I'm not only making a decision to turn my life and my will over to the care of God, I'm making a decision to do steps four through nine. Step four made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. The first time I did that, I wrote my life story. And it it was just not effective as as it was the second time around. I, the second time around, I got down to business. And the instructions on how to do that are in the big book, and that's the way it should be done. Uh, Step five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. The principle behind that step is integrity. 
And reading that fourth step that I wrote, the principle is courage, then I had to have the integrity to tell another person. And by reading that fourth step to someone, that's when I was able to discover the patterns of all my character defects and how I was the reason why my life was a mess, not the other persons, people, places, institutions, and principles. I was able to see my side of it. And if I can see my part in it, then I can allow God to help me with that. And so once I saw my part in it, I had my character defects. So in step six, I become entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. That's my willingness. Not willpower, willingness. And then in seven, I humbly asked him to remove my shortcomings. And that's humility. And um, Bill Wilson Bill Wilson says, um, this is a quote from Bill Wilson who wrote this book, but it's not in this book. Bill, uh, Bill Wilson said, perfect humility, I'm sorry, Bill Wilson and a group of people wrote this book, but Bill Wilson is um, the one who had the story in the beginning. Perfect humility, Bill Wilson wrote, would be a full willingness in all times and places to find and do the will of God. Without some degree of humility, no alcoholic can stay sober at all. And he says, nearly all AAs have found, too, that unless they develop much more of this precious quality than may be required just for sobriety, they still haven't had a chance of becoming truly happy. So humility in step seven uh, the Step 7 prayer is in the big book, and it's a prayer that I have to say every single day uh, so that I can be aware of my character defects. If I'm not aware of my character defects, then I can never I can never work a Step 10. Um, in 8, I did make a list of all persons I had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. The principle is self-discipline. In nine, I made directs to people, amends to such people whenever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. And the principle is love for others. I didn't know how to love other people. I didn't know. I really didn't. I didn't know how to be a friend. I loved my children. Of course I did. But when I made these direct amends to people and I told them that I had done them harm and how can I... What can I do to make it right? This is what I'm willing to do. And then I w said to them, is there anything that I need to do know? Is there any other way that I've hurt you that I'm not aware of and I would like to just listen? What a way to show someone that you love them, to admit you're wrong, you're sorry, and you want to uh, amend that situation and that you want to have a new and better loving relationship with that person uh, and it's not always a close person. It could be an amend to anybody. And I found out that there's no use in leaving any of these men's out because even when you get to step 10, 11, and 12, I've had amends pop up in my mind that I had never had on my fourth step, and I have to make those amends immediately when they come to mind. There's no use in carrying that around because it will 
it will flare up my character defects. I'll become irritable and discontent, and then I'm in a dangerous place. You know, again, I need the power of God, and I need God's will at all times. In step 10, uh, I do continue to take personal inventory, uh, as it says, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. That's just perseverance. I can't drop the ball in this program because I have to have my recovery on a daily basis, and my recovery has to be active. It has to be vibrant. I can't rest on my laurels. I've never picked up any chip for any length of sobriety. I don't even want the laurels to rest on. I think the chip program is a beautiful thing. I don't even tempt myself with the with the reward of a chip because uh, I just I don't I just don't need that kind of thing. I don't want to rest on any kind of laurels, you know, um, because I'm just another bozo on the bus, doing the best I can. So it tell it tells us in this book exactly how to do a step ten. So even if even if I don't have a sponsor that's going to go through it with me step by step, it tells me in this book exactly how to do that, step by step. And then in step 11, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. That spiritual awareness, it's not just growing in my understanding of God. It's an active step that I have to act on every day. I can't just sit here secure in the knowledge that God is taking care of me. I have to actively work this step 11. And it does tell me step by step how I can work a step 11 every single day. Um, And then in step 12... Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs, that service. But you know what I noticed about that step? It says, having had a spiritual awakening. Uh, Awakening, when I get up in the morning, like I was awoken today, (laughs) um, I'm just beginning. So here I am at step 12 having had a spiritual awakening. I've just been awakened with these steps. I've only just begun. So when I do my step 12 every day, since I live this one day at a time, I'm, I'm a newcomer. I have had, I've, had re, I've become recovered. But every day I look for a deeper journey into my connection with God and in knowing what God's will is for me. Um, So all the directions are here in the book. And just before we start living in step 10, 11, and 12, what do they give us on page 83 and 84? The bottom of 83 and the top of 84, we get a whole bunch of promises. These promises, are, are they are fulfilled with me today. You know, I don't have fear of finance. I don't have financial insecurity. Um, the self-seeking will slip away. Um, a lot of these presents, these are promised to us because as long as we continue to live in 10, 11, and 12, then these promises will be active in our life. 
So if I, every once in a while, I check to see how am I doing on my promises that I'm guaranteed in this program, as long as I work it. If I see things starting to slip here and there, I know I need to get busy in step 10 and immediately find out if, if, I'm, if I'm doing an effective job at that. I'm still learning. So uh, I'm going to close. I'm, uh, I did the best I could. Um, I'm not, this is my first time speaking. I hope that I help somebody. And I'd just like to say that I'm just so grateful to be recovered and to not, I can go anywhere. I can go to restaurants. I can be around my family. And I've, I've made some beautiful friends. I have friends from the state of Washington to the state of Pennsylvania, and it's been a wonderful experience, and it has been worth every mistake. It has been worth every learning experience and every piece of humility along the way. So I, I, I really appreciate getting the opportunity to speak and... Uh, Melanie, I'd like to turn it over to you, if that's okay. And uh, if we Thank you, Berta. Thank you very much sure. for sharing your story. This is Leah. Thank you. Thank you, Berta, for sharing your story of transformation as a result of the program of recovery. And thank you for sharing your experience and your insights with us this morning. We're going to now open the floor for any questions people might have, you can address your question to Berta, questions only please, by pressing star 1 to unmute. This is Mary Lee and Pastor Lee Nelson. Yes, uh, I heard Mary Lee, I believe. Go ahead. Thank you, Berta. Oh my gosh. I just, um, anyway, my question is the pause. It's just I, I want to. I so appreciate your pause. That made all the difference in my recovery, and I would just like you to talk about your pause. Oh, you mean the God pause? Yep. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I do so much better talking with people one on one on the phone than having a big audience. So um, I'm honored to do this but I don't feel really real worthy to be a speaker, but I do better one-on-one. She's reminding me about the God pause. I, have, I like to think in pictures in my mind, and I have a big red button um, that I push that has the word God on it. And if I'm going through my day and I need to make a decision, I don't make impulsive decisions anymore. I just push that God pause button. Uh, or... If I find myself becoming um, irritable or discontent or I find myself being irritated at someone, I push the God pause button. That just allows me a moment to step back out of myself so I don't get too far into self-will, self-pity, dishonesty, or any of those other things that trip me up. And it allows me a minute to just say, okay, wait, sometimes I leave the room and say, I'll be right back. It just gives me a moment to touch base with my higher power so that I don't react out of self-will. And so when, even if somebody 
asks me, calls me and says, can you do something for me? I'll say, can I just take a God pause? And then I say, I'll call you back in five minutes. I mean, that helps me. How do you find God's will? People want to know what that is. Sometimes it's just pausing long enough to allow yourself a moment to really not react immediately. Because my immediate reaction is going to be based on my survival instinct, and it's not going to look a lot like God's will. So that's my God pause button. And anybody on the line who wants one, um, I just threw a whole bunch of them out to you so you can use them. (laughs) Thank Thank you, Mary Lee, for the question. question. Yes, thank you. Florence, I believe I heard you. Was there a Florence with a question? Hi. Perhaps. Hi, hi. This yes. is Florence. I'm tired of muting myself. Um, okay, thank you so much, Berta, and I, I admire your courage, uh, mushing, well, walking forward and helping all of us today with your beautiful share. Um, Fear of the steps. Um, I have a weird thinking that I might get into them and be the one person that will will not be able to to work them. And I loved your statement. I'm I'm unique just like you because I, I have some some idea that that it it won't work for me or and and then I'll be without the program that I've had and I've had a wonderful physical recovery but I'm about a year and a half in and I still a baby with the steps. So um thank you so much for your for the, your blessing today and let me know what you think about resistance to working the steps. Thank you. What was your name again? It's Florence. Florence. Hmm. Okay, thank you for the question, Florence. Yes. You know um yeah, you know what you're unique too. <laughs> because uh, a lot of us, when we first look at all these steps, um, a lot of people like me, they start with the chapter, how it works, and mm-hmm. it's like you see all those steps laid out in the fifth chapter, and you have this huge mountain of things that you know you're going to have to do. And really, the best way to take this, I mean, this is a horrible joke for compulsive overeaters, but... How do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? My little grandson loves that joke, but it's mm-hmm. true. Um, we can't work all 12 steps all at one time. So that's why the best thing to do when working the steps for yourself is begin at the beginning. Okay. And don't worry about the next step until you come to that point. Uh, it makes a lot of sense, and it seems like an easy concept to get your head around. But like most people who suffer from addiction, and I know particularly for myself as a compulsive overeater, I like to make things as complicated as I can get them because then I can pat myself on the back for finally figuring it out. But, <laughs> right. You know, so the simpler I keep it, the easier it is. And uh, when when I'm working with people on the phone, we read the big book together. They read a few paragraphs, I read a few paragraphs, and we actually go through the book as it is written, we do not skip around. We do not go here and there. I share with them some of my favorite stories in the back, but mostly I like uh, for them to focus on the solution. At, and as it's laid out means from beginning to end, one bit at a time. And that's the only thing I can really suggest to you. And to continue to keep an open mind because it's uncomfortable when we are asked, 
to open our mind and put something different in because it doesn't always fit real comfortably. So keep an, keep an open mind. Ask God to give you an awareness and an open mind. Okay. I, I hope Thank that answers your question. Thank you, Florence, for the question. Next question. Anyone else? Oops. Hi, I have a question. Yes, go ahead with your question. Yes. Um, first, I just want to say, Berta, that was amazing and wow. I really got so much out of that. And I can't believe it was your first time because just know that you were great. So my my question is, how do you um, figure out exactly what your character defects are and... Um, a little bit about, you know, that step seven prayer that you do every day, how you work that into, you know, your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the step seven um, is uh, that we were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. And then seven is humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Okay, so the character defects that are listed in the big book for us are fear, dishonesty, self-seeking, and selfishness. Now, you could fit hundreds of character defects in there if you care to make it that complicated, and, you know, that that's up to you. You can even go online and ask for 12-step recovery character defects, and they'll give you a long list if you want one. But, you know, I just stick with the main four because everything pretty much fits in there real nice. If I'm jealous, it's because I have fear that my husband maybe doesn't love me anymore. So jealousy fits into fear. And if I'm being dishonest because uh, I'm, I'm afraid my husband doesn't love me anymore and I'm jealous, maybe I'm being dishonest because the truth is maybe I don't have really good self-esteem and maybe I'm not loving myself enough, and maybe I'm not really trusting him, so that's dishonest. So they all fit in somewhere. And the the character defects, as I ask God to remove them, I look for the opposite. I ask God to remove them, but I also ask God to give me the opposite. So I'm looking for, instead of fear, I'm looking for ease and comfort. I used to get ease and comfort when I ate when I ate my binge foods or when I ate anything in quantities, you know. But now I'm looking for that ease and comfort in God so I don't have to have fear in my life if I am if I continue to lean on God. And when I have ease and comfort, that gives me serenity so I can let go of my fear. And if I do have fear, I know that my higher power will give me the courage to face that fear if I need to. And then dishonesty What's the opposite of that? As God removes that, I will have more honesty, I'll have more sincerity, and I will have more faithfulness in my higher power. And self-seeking, I ask God to remove that and replace it with humility and acceptance. You know, um, humility, for instance, for today, humility is I am... 
I'm qualified to speak as a compulsive overeater, but I'm not. I don't think I'm going to do a very good job at speaking. How? Why am I doing this? You know, that's humility. But I know at the same time that the opposite of self-seeking is acceptance. So I must accept that God is going to give me the courage and the strength and the inspiration to talk today. So that's the opposite of self-seeking. Selfishness is, I'll tell you what selfishness is. That's one that people don't really like that word. I don't like to think I'm selfish. But selfishness is self-regard, self-interest, self-love, self-worship, self-absorption. Sound much like self-will to you? Yeah, it's 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 really a lot of self-will. So if I'm really angry because I had a package delivered to my door and it was stolen and one of the people on the floor of my building, somebody stole my package and I'm and I develop a resentment about that, then I'm going to think about that over and over again because I'm self-absorbed with how that affected me. Instead, I ask God to forgive that person for stealing the package, and I hope that they enjoy the use of it, and that's all I can do is turn it over to God. And as a result of these character defects, uh, they're removed further and further away from me in my life as I go along. Will they ever be gone completely? No. Does that help? Thank you for the question. Next question. Star one to unmute if you have a question for Berta this morning. Hello, this is this is Hi, this is Lindsay, compulsive overeater. I heard Lindsay. I heard a couple voices prior to you, Lindsay. Who else? Leslie. Leslie and the other name, please. Peggy. Peggy. Okay, let's go Leslie, Peggy, and then Lindsay, please. Leslie, go ahead. Okay, thank you so much. Um, well, Berta, I am uh, so grateful to have uh, you in my spiritual journey. Um, you give a lot of encouragement and inspiration, and you are a great speaker. My question is, what does your 10th step look like? I, I also have had my paper and things stolen from my door and, uh, you know, uh, created elaborate traps to catch the person. Um, and uh, anyway, but in doing a 10-step, what does a 10-step, I know there's directions in the book, but what does that look like? How do you, who do you call, how do you call, how do you do that? Okay. Um, a step 10 Hi, Leslie, by the way. Glad you're on the line. (laughs) Uh, Step 10 is really like a mini step four. We do a step 10 every day, you know, so that we don't have all that stuff pile up on us again. If we cleaned up the wreckage of our past, why create more wreckage as we go along? So we try to clear our wreckage up every day as soon as it comes up, you know. Um, It's like cleaning house, you know. If you don't do it for two weeks, you're going to have a big job on your hands. 
And so um, the directions, of course, you know they're there. They're on page, um, on page. Uh, let's see. Yeah, 84, this thought brings us to step 10. When I do my step 10, when I see selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, or fear crop up, my character defects are popping up, maybe I don't know where it's coming from, but I know something is up, and I, w I can get on the phone, and I can call somebody and start talking to them, and between me and another recovered person, we can kind of figure out what that is. Um, and while I'm doing this, even if somebody stole something from my front door, no matter how justified my anger is, it's never worth the price. So it says that love and tolerance of others is, is our code, and we have ceased fighting anything or anyone. And that's how I keep my sanity. So when I call somebody, what I do is I get out my my four-step worksheet. And people do this in different ways. This is just how I do it. I, I get out my four-step sheet, and I look at my my inventory sheet, and I look at the columns, and I say, I'm resentful at, whoever, the person that stole the package from my door. And the, re and the cause, the cause of the resentment is um, it's unfair. I paid for it. They didn't. They stole from me. That's the cause. That's what, that's what I have a resentment about. And then I go over, how does this affect me? Does it affect my self-esteem, security? Oh, hold on a second. Sorry. That was my phone. <laughs> um, does it affect my self-esteem, my security, my ambitions, my personal relations, my sex relations, and is there any fear involved? Okay. And then I go to the next step. And I can go ahead and do the, the prayer the fear prayer that's in the book, and that's on page, all this is on page 65 to the end, third paragraph on 67. And then once I talk to God and ask God to remove my fear, if there is any, then I go on to my core character defects. Now I'm going to put out of my mind the person that stole that and how it affected, now I'm just going to look at what my reaction to it was. And I'm, I'm going to look at whether I was selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, or frightened. And I'm going to talk about what that looked like. And then when I'm, done, when I'm finished with doing that, that's when I might do the prayer for the sick person, you know, that's in the big book. And I will say the prayer for the sick person, and I'll say the seven-step prayer, asking God to remove those defects of character. And when I hang up the phone... What do I do? I go find somebody to do service. I find a way to love someone, to cement cement in that whole process. That's my answer. <laughs> I hope that helps. Thank you, Leslie, for the question. Now, Peggy, your question, please. Star one to unmute Peggy. Hi. 
Can you hear me now? Yes. Go ahead okay. with your question. Um, hi, Berta. Um, that was so inspiring to me. Thank you so much. And um, your your modesty about what you had to offer just added added to it. I got so much. And the answer you just gave to um, to Leslie was uh, was also very helpful to me. But um, what I wanted to ask you was, you said you you went through the steps, and you had to go through the steps more than once. And I'm at a point now where I realize I have to do the same thing. And I wonder if you can talk about what, uh, how many times you had to go through the steps, and what was the difference? What made them more effective than your earlier? attempts how was it different your your later trips through the steps what made them what made that journey more effective than earlier tries mm-hmm. thank you mm-hmm. okay thank you yeah uh the first time i went through the steps it was a step study online through an email loop and a different person took each step and they would send an email about a page and a half about working that particular step and they would post three or four questions, and then you would answer those questions via email, and you would send your answers in, and you could sign up to let other people see your answer, and you could read what, how everybody answered the question. And they would tell you to read this page and this paragraph and this page. And, and it never started from the beginning. It just read this paragraph and this paragraph, and it was all kind of hodgepodge here and there, and it took about six weeks to do. Uh, the second time I did it, that first time I had no sponsor. I hadn't read the book from beginning to the end at all. And so the second time I did it, I did it with a sponsor. That sponsor uh, was wonderful and helpful in many, many ways. However, uh, her idea of recovery was be abstinent. And that was mainly the core of the program that she had to share with me is just stay abstinent. And don't get too hungry, too angry, too lonely, or too tired, and don't get upset, and don't do this and don't do that. You know, I have to still live in this world, even when things go wrong. Even if I get angry or lonely or tired, I, you know, uh, I can't isolate myself from this world. And so I got a little bit more from her. I gradually got more as I went along. And then the last time I worked these steps, I worked them with the big book from the very beginning, reading the forewords in the book and the preface and underlining and looking up words in the dictionary. And uh, I worked it with a sponsor uh, and uh, listened to the Vision for You study, and I, I... use many of the podcasts. Whatever step I was on, I looked for podcasts. Now, when I started listening, there weren't as many as there are now. There are much, there's a lot of podcasts that weren't there when I, wasn't, when I first started doing this. I also used a step study workbook, which I cannot mention on the phone because it's not OA approved. But if you would like to call me, I can give you that information in a private conversation. And the, the workbook helped me along the way, but I did more than just I, I did more than just a, a book report. I I learned how to actively work the steps in my life, which is a different kind of experience than a book report. Um, so it was helpful. And when I worked the steps the first two times around, 
I was told that when you get to step 12, you start over at step one again. I didn't know anything about becoming recovered and living in 10, 11, and 12. I didn't know that existed, and I didn't know anybody could have a recovered state. I thought we we were all just hoping to stay abstinent one more day. So I have a new experience now, uh, and that's because of my higher power, which allowed me to have the willingness and the courage, and in a huge, huge part to this meeting of Vision for You which taught me a lot, that's that's the answer that I have. Thank you, Peggy, for the question. And now we move on to Lindsay. Lindsay, press star one to unmute. Hi, this is Lindsay from Closive Overeater. Hi. Go ahead with your question, Lindsay. Maybe she's on. Maybe she's on. Okay, can you hear me now? Yes. I'm so sorry. My um, I have an iPhone and I go ahead with your question, Lindsay. Okay, my question, sorry, was similar to um the second the question that Leslie asked, and I just wanted to go over it again because I was taking notes and I really so um, can we go over what the tenth step looks like again? You said it's on um. Can you just go, or can I go over the notes I took? What what do you prefer? Um, You know what? Um, Would you be willing to give me a call so I could go over it with you on the phone? Oh, sure. Okay. Will we get your number at the end? Yes, we'll be offering, yes, Um, Berta's number after the conclusion of this recording. Thank you. That'll be great. Okay, great. great. Yeah. That was a wonderful wonderful question. Thank you. Mm Mm-hmm. Indeed. Anyone else with a question this morning for Berta before we wrap up? Yes. This Hi. Uh, yes. This meeting, is this meeting being recorded? It is. Do you have a oh. question? Could you give that information at the end of the uh, I meeting? Would, I okay. will, yes. Yes, I will. Anyone I with a question, please? For yes. Mm-hmm. Regarding the program of recovery. Yes. Can I ask a question, please? Yes, your name? Hi, my name is Laura H. I'm from upstate New York. Hi, Laura. Go ahead with your question. Hi. Thanks for your service, and thanks for such a wonderful share. Um, My question is um, right on page 83, just before the last paragraph when we get into um, our wonderful promises, um, it says, we don't delay if it can be avoided. We should be sensible, tactful, considerate, and humble without being servile or scraping. As God's people, we stand on our feet. We don't crawl before anyone. So um, for me, I, well, I take this book really, you know, literally. It's my directions how to stay alive um, and to how to become a, a better person. So um, my question is when uh, something happens, when someone steals from me, um, I don't want to be in a place of anger, um, but I also, I feel like I, I don't, crawl before anyone, so my response would be to call the police, um, because I don't crawl before anybody, and if I continue to let people um, abuse me, I'll just get more and more angry and, and resentful. So can you maybe define how you would um, not crawl before anybody 
and how you would avoid resentment at the same time. Thank you. Yes, uh, thank you for the question. Um, You know, in this case, I have no idea who took it, and I'm not going to disturb all my neighbors because maybe it was someone not even from this floor. It might have been a guest in the building. I don't know. Um, But if someone, you know, committed a crime against me, um, like if I was assaulted or, uh, you know, of course I would report a crime. However, um, I would not, how do I want to put it, if someone committed a crime against me today, I would hope, I would hope that, in the recovered state I have today, that I could forgive that person for the crime they committed against me. Um, if, if, For instance, if someone committed a crime against my daughter and we knew who it was, and, and uh, people get wrapped up in justice and fairness, and what if that person didn't, I could call the police and maybe he got out on bail and that would make me unhappy. And Maybe he didn't get a long enough sentence, and that wouldn't make me happy. And maybe they never, maybe they never paid me back their, uh, paid the money for um, what's the word when you pay, pay money for um, what you've done. You know, you have to pay the victim back. Maybe I never get my money. I can take that that crime that happened against me, and I can uh, nurture that resentment and carry it on for months, or but I won't stay recovered for very long. For me today, um, so far I haven't found it worth the price. So I hope that helps. And, and that paragraph that you read, that we don't have to be servile or scraping, um, you know, we are different people by the time we make this uh, amend, and we are trying to live a different life. And so we don't have to make the amend and say, this is what I did wrong. I am a horrible person. I am an awful person. No, we don't want to do that. We want to say, I am doing the best I can to change my life with God's help, and I want to be a better person than I was before. And that's why we stand up as a creation of God, because Now we are becoming a different person, whereas before I had to wear a mask and I had to pretend to be someone else. Now I can stand up and be who I am in the light of God's love and understanding. That's how I understand that. Um, And maybe someone else understands it differently, but that's how I understand that. Thank you very much for your question, Laura H., and thank you to all who posed questions this morning. And, of course, thank you, Berta, for sharing your experience with us and your story of transformation. And I'm going to close this morning's meeting in the way we always close our meetings here on A Vision for You, and that's from page 164. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. 
This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.